Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. He did the heavy lifting on editing this episode, and you can learn more about his work at idealvideostrategies.com. Also, registration for this fall's ADHD Essentials Online Parent Coaching Groups closes today. So, hit that link in the show notes and come on by if you're interested in signing up. We'll run for six weeks, starting October 14th, that's a Monday, and ending October 20th, that is a Wednesday, because we meet on Mondays and Wednesdays. One session is at 12 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, the other session is at 5 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Each week has a theme, and there's all kinds of delightful stuff to learn about. So swing on by the website and sign up. Also, coming up on Tuesday, it's the ADHD Rewired live Q&A. Myself and Eric Tivers will both be there. It starts at 1.30 Eastern Standard Time. I'd love to have you come by. Go to ADHDrewired.com events to register. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Beth Dinelli and Alex Fortuna of the Commonwealth Learning Center. The Commonwealth Learning Center supports kids with learning disabilities through specialized one-on-one instruction. Beth is the director of the Commonwealth Learning Center in Danvers, and Alex is the director of the Commonwealth Learning Center in Needham. They are both experts in reading. So, that's what we're talking about. In fact, in today's episode, we talk about the intersection of reading and ADHD. Alex, Beth, and I look at the various elements that go into reading, from very basic foundational elements to more sophisticated ones. We also discuss multiple reading disorders, dyslexia among them, and ways parents can help their kids read better and more often. A special note, the audio on this one is a little staticky and clicky at times. I apologize in advance. We did the best we could to clean it up, but it's still in there. And a bonus special note, in order to celebrate ADHD Awareness Month and get to 100 episodes before the upcoming ADHD conference, running November 7th through the 10th, I will be posting two bonus episodes during the month of October, so keep your eye out for them. Or maybe your ears. One of the two. All right, let's get rolling. So my name is Beth Dinelli, and I'm the director of Commonwealth Learning Center in Danvers, Massachusetts. I've been the director of the center since 2015. I began at Commonwealth Learning Center back in 1999 as a part-time tutor. And then in 2005, I became assistant director. And then, as I mentioned, in 2015, I became director. And how about you, Alex? I am the director of the Commonwealth Learning Center here in Needham, Massachusetts. I have been working with Commonwealth for four years, and my background is in education. I've worked as a reading specialist in local schools. Um, I've worked at Boston Children's Hospital, collaborating with an entire team approach to advocate for and provide appropriate services for students with learning differences. Like Beth, 
I'm just very passionate about helping children learn in, in ways that meet their needs. And that's what the Commonwealth Learning Center does, right? Is you're, you're helping kids who are struggling. Yeah, primarily to learn to read, but we also help them in the areas of writing and math as well. And today we're going to mainly focus on that reading side because reading challenges sort of go hand in hand with ADHD so often. In particular, dyslexia goes hand in hand with ADHD and is certainly comorbid with it. But that's not the only challenge around reading that a kid with ADHD can experience. There's also just your general attentional issues can make it harder for a kid with ADHD to read, and that can make them sort of resistant to it. I was actually talking to my kid about this last night. He was telling me about how right now he prefers to read books with pictures in them. And what was interesting was he drew a clear delineation because... I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I'm a comic book guy. I literally made it in comics in my undergrad. Um, so I know them on the scholarly level as well as just I like reading them. So we have graphic novels and stuff around my house. And he drew the line between graphic novels and books with pictures. And he said, I don't mean graphic novels. I mean, I like reading books with pictures in them because it breaks up the text and lets him focus better. He was telling me about how when he reads a book that is just text all day, and he used Harry Potter as an example, that it takes him forever because the words start to swim on the page. And it's sort of just the way he described it was, it just looks like black and white stuff. And I don't see the words and letters anymore. It just looks like a black line, which is, this is new information for me. He's in fifth grade and reads all the time um, and reads well, but it, he struggles. And I, jumped out with the index card strategy that I am a big fan of where I use it because that happens to me sometimes. And I use an index card as a bookmark in all the books I read. So I can then slide it underneath the lines of the text to help my eyes focus better. I don't want people listening to assume that we're just going to talk about dyslexia. We're going to talk about reading from stem to stern and, and the challenges that a kid with ADHD may experience. And that's, that's just me throwing out a small example. And if you don't mind, if I just jump in, I, I appreciate how you brought up the how dyslexia and ADHD can be comorbid because a lot of the time it's really hard when we have young students to kind of distangle those two. Is it ADHD that's making reading difficult? Is it difficult? That's ma- Is it the reading that's making a child look like they may have ADHD and one does not cause the other, but you know, having both can just make it a little harder for our learners. So let's start with just what is reading? Like, what are the elements of this thing that we all do and assume we understand? Reading is quite a multifaceted process, um, but at its core, reading is making meaning from print. And, and what is that? In, in the research and kind of understanding reading world, we talk about the big five when it comes to the elements of reading. And I'll break those down. The first component of reading is phonemic awareness. And that is the ability to hear, identify, and manipulate individual sounds, fancy word, phonemes, within words. And this starts before anybody's even reading at all. I mean, it's part of reading, but there's no print in front of you. But it's, we're doing this in the early years. Does that just mean like I see a TH and I go th in my head? So not even yet. So that means more I hear or I can take the sounds b, a, t, and say bat without seeing the symbols yet. Or I can manipulate sounds within words. So for example, Brendan, say bat. 
bat. Now say bat without saying b. At. Right? And so you're just listening and manipulating those sounds. And, you know, another part of that is also rhyming. Um, and these are all really important early reading skills for learners to develop in preschool and even earlier. Yeah, phonemic awareness is the basic foundation for all reading and spelling success. So that needs to be intact before any other reading instruction takes place. And that's all happening like when they're infants, or maybe not infants, but when... Yeah, I, mean, I, would, I would argue infants, yeah. Cool. So what, what else? What are some other aspects that we need to know? Yeah, so the second element of the big five are phonics, right? And so that's the understanding that there is a predictable relationship between phonemes, so those sounds that we've been learning, um, and graphemes, which are the letters and spellings that represent those sounds in written language. So that's the sound symbol correspondence or the sound symbol relationship, right? So knowing that when I see the letter B, that's a symbol, and that letter makes the book sound. Works for me. Hooked on phonics joke? No, nobody? I got it. Yeah, I mean, that was a, we went away in the history of reading. It was hooked on phonics and then it left for a while. And now the research is very clear in telling us that we teach phonics as a way to develop reading skills. Awesome. What's next? What's next? The third is vocabulary. Um, and again, this is, these are the words we must know and use to communicate effectively. We have obviously two kinds of vocabulary, our oral vocabulary words we use when we're speaking and that we can recognize when we're listening and then words are reading vocabulary which are the words that we learn to build and recognize within print and typically our reading vocabulary is larger than our verbal vocabulary right or at least in in use like we use lar more diverse words when we write than when we read or than we than we speak i think so and then and then the fourth element is fluency which is the ability to read a text accurately and quickly so you're an, you become an automatic reader. So you don't really have to think any, you know, it just becomes so automatic that when, when you see that symbol, you know the sound, you can blend those sounds together to form a word, and then you know what that word means, right? It's, it, like I said, it's a very complicated process. A lot is going on when we read. When we read. And having that fluent behavior and that fluent reading then gives us our comprehension, which is the real reason for reading, right? We want to be able to understand what we're reading and make meaning from the text as we grow as readers. So that those are the big five. The Put Reading First research organization determined we're our big five in reading um, <laughs> in terms of how we should be teaching students and what we need to emphasize in their reading instruction. Awesome. And it's a, it's kind of amazing to me that four of them are pieces of comprehension that they're just i understand letter sounds i can blend them together and then finally we get to i understood what i read and what the meaning behind it is yeah you know you can imagine with all that's going on as we learn how to read and when we're actually reading how if you have adhd how that can impact your ability to hold on to all five pieces as you're reading and then obviously if you have a reading difficulty there's a disconnect in terms of developing those skills fluently and you know so when it comes to the comprehension side because that's really what we're building towards does that break down further as well or is that sort of its own thing and i guess that i sort of the same similar question for all of them i guess but do these concepts break down into sub concepts or are they any of them sort of like 
phonemic awareness is just phonemic awareness and there isn't really any subcategories or how deep do these go? Not that we're going to go down all these rabbit holes, but I'm just wondering. They all have more components built within them like to develop and you can have strong aspects of your phonemic awareness can be strong and parts of it can be difficult, you know, harder for students. Same with you know, comprehension. There can be really strong readers that don't understand what they're reading. So the breakdown can just be in the comprehension, but then vice versa, you can have students who are off the charts with their comprehension when they're listening, but it's the, the phonics that, and the fluency that's breaking down. So they're not able to read silently and understand what they're reading. I mean, I think my biggest takeaway to when I talk, when we talk about the elements of reading and how much goes into reading development is it is a major experience and it's a huge task to take on when people are learning how to read. And so I think it's important to appreciate this as our kids are learning. And if there are any missteps, that's, you know, it's a complicated process. Yeah. And we want to have an expert helping us with it because it's way more complicated than we probably expect it to be. What are some of the common reading disorders that you're seeing at Commonwealth Learning Center that might show up in school? Where does this process break down? So to kind of piggyback onto what Alex was speaking about, there's really three types of reading disabilities, um, and they can either be separate and distinct or they can overlap. So the first one is a phonological deficit. So that is relating to oral language and phonological awareness which is related to what, what Alex was speaking about in terms of phonemic awareness. So phonological awareness deals with phonemic awareness, rapid naming, and phonological memory. And I'm gonna talk about the phonemic awareness piece first. So phonemic awareness, like Alex had mentioned, if a student can't manipulate speech sounds and tell you what's the first sound in a word, what's the last sound in a word, what's the middle sound in a word, or can't rhyme words, do, do bat and sat, do they rhyme? Do done and sat rhyme? They don't rhyme. So if you can't do basic skills like that, you're going to have a really difficult time learning how to read. So that's one of the basic components that we see at the learning center. Typically with the younger students, with kindergartners, we see students from kindergarten through adult, but it can happen with pre-K students or in preschool. I tested a student last year um, who was a seventh grader and he broke down at the phonological level, whereas at that point, his phonological awareness should have been intact and it wasn't remediated at an early age. And so he was breaking down at that point. So that's the first type of disability. The second type is fluency and naming speed. So that affects the speed and accuracy of word recognition. So that's where the phonics piece comes in and you wanna be able to have your sound symbol correspondence intact so that you can use word attack strategies to segment sounds, blend sounds. Um, all of those components are really important for that word reading accuracy and fluency piece. Like Alex mentioned, it needs to become automatic. So students need to overlearn things for it to become automatic if they're having difficulty with reading. So that's an area where we see a lot of students break down if their phonological awareness and phonemic awareness is in place, then they're breaking down at the phonics level um, at this fluency and naming speed level. And so that's an area where we remediate a lot, quite a bit at the center. Um, and that's all ages, you know, various levels. I mean, I could have someone, again, older students who haven't received any intervention who 
struggle at the basic closed level, which is the basic, you know, first syllable type that they learn. So it varies. Um, it just depends on the age and the grade and the, the extent of their reading disability. And then the last type of reading disability is language comprehension. So that can happen at the vocabulary level. There could be a weakness in vocabulary. Um, it could be a weakness in abstract reasoning, which is more the inferential type of reasoning, being able to draw conclusions and make inferences. And then it also has to do with logical reasoning, you know, stating the, stating the main idea, making connections to text, um, questioning the text. So we see students, like Alex mentioned, that can read and take words right off the page, but then they, they don't understand a word of what they're reading. Basically what they're doing is they're word calling and words are going in one ear and out the other. Um, and they're not comprehending and not remembering what they, what they have. So we see quite a few students like that. And I think that's a place where parents struggle to understand what's going on. I would have trouble relating to that because I start to think, well, if you've, if you read it, but nothing stayed in your head after you read it, if you didn't understand anything that you were reading and you don't remember anything that you read, why aren't you bringing that up? I understand once shame hits why a kid might not want to say that something. But early on, when everyone else seems to be understanding what this book is about and can talk about it afterwards, and I don't have any recollection whatsoever about what happened with this book, how do we miss those kids? Yeah, I think sometimes the younger students maybe can't articulate, you know, what's happening. But I think it's, you know, part of the, the reasoning, too, is that teachers need to be, you know, within the classroom asking questions and making observations of, you know, who's participating, who's not participating, and who's able to answer questions, who's not, and being really diagnostic and prescriptive about that. I think a lot of the time, too, sometimes it gets a little bit you know, I don't know if scapegoat is the right word, but, oh, they just need to try harder or, oh, they're not focusing, right? And it's not that they're not focusing because they don't want to, or, it, you know, there could be a real underlying difficulty there. And I think it's really important to understand and look at all aspects and not just say, oh, they can try harder or, oh, they, they just need to focus. If they focus a little more, it would be fine. And this is a concept that comes up in my workshops a lot. It comes up on this podcast and it's slightly disconnected from reading, but absolutely it fit, factors into this. The phrase I've been re using recently is don't punch down. And what I mean by that is it is not the case. It doesn't work for me that, oh, that kid just has to try harder. That kid is trying. Let's assume that that kid is trying hard. Let's assume there's a breakdown and that we as the adults are failing that kid. Not on purpose, not because we're bad at what we do, but because we haven't figured out what's going on with that kid, regardless of what the difficulty is. And in this case, we're talking about reading, but it could be anything. It could be writing down homework. It could be turning in homework. But if, if a kid is not executing the way that we would like them to, if they're not meeting with success, it's not because they don't want to, and it's certainly not because they're not trying hard enough. It's probably because they don't know how to try better which is different from trying harder. And that indicates some, de some deficit somewhere that we need to address. Yeah, the teacher needs to address, you know, what strategies are gonna work best for certain students because all students learn differently. Are there any reading disorders that typically come along with ADHD more commonly than others? Um, what I will say is that 30% of kids do have ADHD. 
30% of kids with dyslexia have ADHD? Yeah. So I would say, um, I would say the phonological piece and the phonics piece would be ones that come along with ADHD more commonly. Um, that seems to be my experience. I don't know if the same is true for you, Alex. Yeah, we see similar within our population here. So can we play with that a little bit? Like what might parents or teachers want to look for to find those challenges so that they can then get the kids the help that they need? What are some red flags? So in terms of early you know, screening, which is a really big topic right now, especially here in Massachusetts, some of the earliest red flags, right, is, is there a family history? That's number one when it comes to dyslexia. Mm -hmm. Do you have parents or their siblings? If you do have a parent or a sibling or a grandparent that has been diagnosed with dyslexia, keep an eye on, on, on your other children or your younger children. Um, also, some early screening tools that I think should start, you know, preschool, early elementary, looking at some of that phonological awareness. Um, are those skills developing as they at an age appropriate pace, right? Because again, as Beth had said, with that disconnect early on, it's the foundation for the rest of your reading. So making sure we are targeting kids in their early stages of reading development um, and giving them proper intervention and instruction. And maybe it won't lead to anything. Maybe it won't lead to an official diagnosis one day, but at least we've had them on our radar and given them the explicit instruction that they need to help support them as they move forward in their education. Cool. Awesome. So let's say that our kids have gotten through sort of the basics of reading, right? They can, phonological awareness is there. They've hit the point where they're reading for comprehension, but they're still struggling. How as a parent might I be able to help? Even something as simple as the example I gave of, about my kid earlier, where he's, he doesn't want to read Harry Potter because it doesn't have pictures. And, and literally, if there was like a small picture every two or three pages, he would be fine. And that's all he needs. But he's not inclined to read those more challenging books because he wants it broken up with a picture. And at some point, that stops. Although I'm finding more books that actually have those pictures in them sort of periodically, which is fantastic. Um, so what are, what's a strategy I might use to help him with that? Is it, is that index card one sort of the, is that the bread and butter? Is that the way to go? Or is there something else? Well, I think, you know, what's a great strategy is to, you know, bring your enthusiasm to reading and reading aloud to him to hear you read. And then also talking about, what mental imagery is coming to your mind as you're reading the story so he can create his own mental pictures and eventually picture the story on his own without the aid of those pictures in the book. So, so to speak, he's going to make a mental movie in his mind. You can question him, you know, as he, as either you're, you can question as you're reading or you can question him as he's reading to you. Oh, what is that character? What does that character look like? Is he tall? Is he short? Does he have brown hair? Does he have blonde hair? Um, what kind of personality do you think he has? Does he seem happy? Does he seem angry, gloomy? Um, all of those kinds of choice and contrast questioning techniques will help promote a solid mental image in his mind. Um, and I think listening to you read is 
a great way for him to see a role model for reading, to hear rich vocabulary, to hear good reading fluency. Um, all those things will help promote him wanting to read on his own and read without pictures. Awesome. And we, we read all the time to our kids. We do. That's great. We've hit the point where my wife reads to them and then I read to them. That's terrific. So they probably get like 45 minutes of reading. Oh, that's stuff awesome. Because I know parent, you know, families where that's not the case. Yeah. And we both read different books. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and we do, we do a lot of books on tape too. So we'll, if we're driving somewhere, we've got an audible book up or maybe a podcast that's telling a story. So that stuff's happening. That's great. I'd just like to add, because as I was talking earlier about the big five and the elements of reading, one that's not in there, but I think is really important is motivation, right? And so if you're not motivated to do something, it's really hard to get anybody to do something that they're not motivated to do. And so everything that Beth suggested, um, finding text that interests your child is so important. And what you might think as a parent is a classic that you really want your child to read and enjoy might not be what your child really loves and thinks is a classic, right? So if your child loves anime or loves a specific athlete, they can read that. And reading is reading is reading. So if it's like you were talking about earlier, a graphic no novel, there's still print in there. If it's an article from a magazine, that's print. It doesn't have to necessarily be a chapter book in our normal sense of what a chapter book looks like. So if they love to read conversation interviews with their favorite athlete or whatever it might be, that's a great way to motivate your child and kind of get them hooked into the world of reading. And I love that you mentioned audiobooks because I recommend those all the time. Because also what happens, kind of going back to, to some of our students with reading difficulties, is they have the comprehension but the decoding, that reading the words that's getting in, in the way of them being able to read a book that might be at their intelligence and interest level. And so we don't want to lose that interest. So we want them to be reading text that meets their, their intellect and their interest and, and their vocabulary knowledge to keep building their vocabulary and keep building their comprehension. But they might be stuck reading books at a lower level because those are the words they can read. So continuing to read aloud, continuing to listen to books on tape with their interest in mind is really what's going to keep them interested and motivated to learn to, to continue and, and work at this you know, very hard task. I know in the circles I travel in, there's a lot of full-grown adults listening to books on tape. And there's all this arguing about, is that reading? Does that count as reading? If you're going for comprehension, it absolutely does. It counts as reading. So if you're 42 years old, and you listen to, I don't know, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, you still get to say you read that book. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're working on decoding skills and you're, say, seven, that's a different animal. Then, then we want to, we still want to do those audiobooks, it sounds like, but we also want to supplement and, and get to the basics of those decoding skills that are falling down. I'm an Audible member, and I, for myself, I love to read fiction. And I have a harder time reading non reading, you know, out of a book, nonfiction. It's just not, you know, I'm on vacation. It's harder for me to pick up a nonfiction text, but I listen to nonfiction texts. And for, and for me, it's a much more enjoyable experience to listen to that kind of information. And I retain it better than when I read the nonfiction versus fiction. What do you do when you're listening? 
<laughs> it's my commute. Because that's the thing I found, especially for folks with ADHD, if you're going to listen to a book, you got to do something else too. And that might be cleaning the house. It might be driving somewhere. It might be going for a walk. But typically we have to do like a physical fidget while we listen auditorily to the books. I do want to circle back to something Beth said, because I have reading experts with me right now. So I'm going to take advantage of that. You mentioned that as a parent, one good thing for me to do would be to sort of talk to my kids about what I picture in my mind when I'm reading to them. So as a, as a former English teacher and a guy who loves to read, um, it's a little hard for me to admit this, but I don't. I don't picture things in my mind, but I want to caveat that a little bit. I don't typically read and get this visual processing experience thing that's happening. Like I see the forest or I see the city or whatever. Or I see the person with the scar on their face. That's not what happens for me. Typically, the way I experience a book is highly emotionally. So I'm much more likely to feel excited or nervous or scared than I am to picture the scene that's making me feel excited or nervous or scared. Yeah, so you're making connections to the text, you're connecting to the plot, you're connecting to the characters. And that's another active reading strategy that we teach students at the learning centers. So, it, you know, some students don't picture and we actually see students where we teach them to make mental images in their mind. There's a specific program that we use to do that. It's not atypical for a reader um, to not visualize as they read. Sometimes it's just not automatic for some. As a writer, I can totally go the other way. I can picture something in my mind and then write it out descriptively. But even when I'm doing that, as I write, it's more emotional than it is. Like I'm not using emotional descriptive words, but I'm feeling the emotions while I use the visual descriptive words as I write. Mm -hmm. So I'm just more of an emotional guy, I guess, which probably makes sense to my listeners. <laughs> Given, <laughs> talk a lot about emotions. Um, but that's a thing that I've always been like, I don't know, there's something wrong with me. Like how come that doesn't happen? I also don't often laugh at books that I read. That's a rarity for me. Even if I read a funny book, like I sort of cognitively, I'm like, yeah, that's funny. But I don't, I don't actually laugh out loud. Every now and then it happens, but it's, I just read Howie Mandel's autobiography. Here's the deal. Don't touch me. And I think I laughed like four times in the entire book, which is not an insult to Howie. It's a funny book. There's a lot of really great stories in it. It's just not how I roll. Um, is that typical or is that like, where does that land? Am I a freak? <laughs> <laughs> no you're not a freak like i mentioned it's even for myself uh ever since i was a kid i've struggled to visualize what i read that's something that i struggled with as a kid and i struggled with comprehension and comprehension is definitely stronger now for me but it's not something that always comes easily so i don't think it's unusual for you at all because I've seen it in other children and I've seen it in other adults. So we've sort of touched on this stuff a little bit already, but aside from reading to our kids and aside from audiobooks, how do we get our kids to read more? How do we help them find books that they might be interested in? What, is, what do we do with that? Um, well, you know, I think it's been said before, but you know, libraries and librarians are your friends. I mean, I think there are so many resources and at our local libraries of books that you would never stumble upon on your own. Um, and so I think 
providing a variety for your child and like kind of seeing what interests interests them and you know what what sparks their interest is the best place to start and then you know go down that path if if you think that they can continue if it's something um that they can they're interested in finding out more and learning more you know if it's a fantasy novel if it's a um wizardry if it's graphic novels um one of the things when i taught that i would advise parents was to figure out what kinds of stories their kids like by paying attention to the video games they play the tv shows they watch the movies they enjoy and find books that match those kinds of stories um so that might be a strategy and then also um i would always recommend books in a series always always because the hardest part of a book, especially for kids who struggle to read, is figuring out sort of the rules of the world of the book and getting to know the characters and learning what the setting is going to be like and all of that sort of thing. In a series, that's all done with the first book. And then you don't have to pay that upkeep cost or that you don't have to pay that entrance fee once you move into the next book. That's motivational. Yeah. Um, and then there's, you know, I don't know if this is scientifically based, but there is something that they use a lot in schools called the five finger rule. And this is more in terms of finding a book that's at the right level for you. Um, and the five finger rule is if you're reading, you know, just kind of pick up a book and open to a random page. And if the child reads it, if there's, if they make zero or one um, errors, it might be too easy for, for the child. Um, if it's, if they have two errors, it's probably a good choice. Three errors, they might need some, it's probably still a good choice, but they may need a little help. Um, and then four or five errors on a page, it's probably a little bit too difficult for them to read on their own. Um, so it might be a good, if they're really passionate about reading that book, that might be a good option to read together as a you know parent-child. Or um, something else I like to recommend is encouraging your ch children if they don't want to read with you or they don't, you know, they're resistant. Um, reading to pets is a really nice, if your family has a pet and there's been a lot of research about, you know, I'm a dog lover and reading to pets is a great non judgmental experience. So, um, and if you don't have a pet reading to your stuffed animals or something, you know, could be an experience that kids enjoy. That's awesome. Yeah. And and for parents who want to figure out how to get their kids to read to them, this is something that worked for me purely by accident. Uh, Sunday night, I think. I was just done. I was so tired. And going to bed normal time, it was actually early for me, but the boys were going to bed. And I couldn't read. I just couldn't get my eyes to focus on the words on the page. I was so tired. I, but the muscles in my eyes were not letting me do it. And I said to them, I was like, guys, I just I can't. I, I, I'm happy to hang out here with you. We can talk about something if you want. You can read to me, but I cannot. I just can't. And they did. They just, they read to me. They each took a turn with the book. They would read it like a, I think one read a chapter and then the other one read a chapter. And it was great. And we had never done that before just because it's typically it's me, my wife or I reading to them. But but that is completely a thing that we're going to do a little more often um, now that it, now that I've sort of broken the ice on that when they're 10. Clearly, I should have done that sooner. Um, but if you're trying to figure out how to get your kid to read to you, just 
be tired one night and see if you can get them to do it. And some of that is that interest stuff that you talked about, right? We're reading um, the Ranger's Apprentice series, the first book in the Ranger's Apprentice series, which is one of my favorite books. Like I am a huge fan of that series and, um, and they happen to like it too. And we are pretty deep into it. So they wanted to read it. The only choice was for them to do it. So. I love that you brought up your experience of being tired at the end of the day and reading because the same thing happens for me. I go to read at the end of the day and, you know, I can't even get through a page and I'm falling asleep. And we usually save, you know, our daily, you know, if a school assigns 20 minutes of reading, that's usually done right before bedtime for our kids and they're tired, right? So sometimes it's also just changing the routine and maybe saying, you know, let's do our 20 minutes of reading every morning during breakfast or before breakfast when they're more alert because that's right before bed, you know, more errors are likely to occur. They're probably not going to understand what they're reading. You know, if, if they're the ones reading, I, I'm not saying stop reading to your children before bed, but in terms of them doing their 20 minutes of reading, it can be exhausting at the end of the day. And, and you can even do like, we do homework from four o'clock to five o'clock. That's on lock. If you don't have any homework, read. And then it's a little earlier in the day. Beth, what were you about to say? So uh, just to piggyback onto Alex, I was just going to say two things. Um, I think it's important to establish some kind of routine, whether it's in the morning or in the afternoon, if the kids are off or in the evening. So make it a regular family routine, meaning reading. And then another thing to motivate them is maybe pick a book that has become a movie. And then the goal is once the book is finished, we can have a family night and we can watch the movie together. Here's a question. This is a, a conversation I got in when I was doing my English teacher stuff. I started thinking about how maybe it's a good idea to have kids watch the movie first and then read the book. And my logic circles back to that making a picture in your mind stuff. If you've seen the movie, you've got the visuals. And you can plug that into the book as you read. And then also notice where things are different. And that's a whole different reading strategy. Um, but, but where do you land on that? What do you think about that idea? Yeah, I love that idea as well. I think that's a terrific idea. I, I totally support it. Yeah, and I think it works either way too. You know, if they read the book first, then you can, then you watch the movie. And if they are making pictures in their head, you can say, oh my gosh, I didn't picture that character at all, like the way they did that in the movie. Or um, So that's just another great way to have a conversation about text. And in my family, those we have those conversations all the time. Um, and just throwing out some ways to frame that conversation for the listeners who might not be as into stories and things as I am. We have conversations around, why do you think they made that change? Right? Like going even deeper than what was different. Okay. What was different? It was this, this, and this, right? That's kind of easy stuff, but then start saying, how come? And that gets to like the change in media from writing to a movie or, or, the fact that a movie is shorter than a TV than a book is, or they had to expand something or those sorts of things. It gets to some pretty solid critical thinking skills for your kids. Um, my boys are leaning pretty heavily on the, well, that will make them more money strategy at the moment. And I uh, had to bring a lot of that a little bit. They're not wrong, but, <laughs> um, but that doesn't always get as far as I would like them to heading in a heading in a bit of a different direction when it, when it comes to looking for support for our kids in reading, and specifically when it comes to looking for people and, and 
companies and businesses like Commonwealth Learning that offer this support. What sorts of things should my listeners be looking for? Because they're not all in Massachusetts. The ones who are sort of in Massachusetts in the Danvers Needham area, certainly they can go right to you, but I've got people in New Zealand listening to this. Um, so what are some of the the structures and systems or resources that they should be looking for with regard to getting the support that they need and knowing that a facility is hitting the level of standard that we would want them to? Yeah, so I think one thing to look for is you want individualized instruction. I think that's really key. There are learning centers out there that have small groups, and I don't think that instruction is, is as effective. I think that one-to-one instruction lends itself to customizing to meet needs of the individual learner. Um, I think if you're talking about dyslexia, you want a learning center that utilizes multi-sensory structured phonics-based instruction. Um, and you wanna make sure that the teachers that are employed at the learning center are certified and trained in the programs that are taught there. For example, Orton Gillingham, Tutors should be certified. That means they've gone through at least 60 hours of coursework and a 100 hour practicum. Um, So there's certain standards that teachers need to have in order to really meet the needs of students students with learning differences. Um, I uh, agree with everything Beth had said. Um, And, you know, I think if you don't have, if you can't find something that's local, really working with your school system um, is a really important piece. And I would just say be persistent. It's sometimes, you know, I talk to parents and I know it feels like a part-time job being an advocate for your child to make sure that they're getting what they need in school. Um, But you really need to do that. Um, And sometimes, you know, it's no fault of anybody's, but, you know, the parents know their child best and they know and usually I hear from parents all the time, you know, I had a gut feeling when they were little and, you know, everybody just said they'd grow out of it, they'd grow out of it, and now we're in fourth grade. Like, follow your gut um, and just continue to be that strong advocate for your child and and work with the school in a collaborative way to to get as much support from the school team that you can as well. When you mentioned if you can't find someone local, that sort of sent me to, to my world where I meet with people over the internet and have video chat conferences and talk to people online to help coach them with their ADHD. Can reading instruction be done in a similar way? Is it possible to do it by way of video chat? Yeah, I think so. I don't see why not. Okay. So the folks might be able to find something like that potentially. Yeah. Okay. I'll see if I, if I can find anything, I will put it in the show notes. Oh, mighty listener. A couple places to look. The Decoding Dyslexia is a national organization, and every kind of state has their own chapter. I'm pretty sure every state has one, so this might not, and it might even be international. So maybe your your listeners in New Zealand may have a some Decoding Dyslexia or something similar, and um, it's a great resource for obviously specifically dyslexia, but a lot of their contributors, since we've been speaking about the comorbidity of of ADHD and dyslexia, I imagine the resources are are there as well um, for for support. And 
if you're looking for Orton Gillingham specific or, or tutors or or centers, the Orton Gillingham Academy website will provide a list of tutors in your area um, if you're looking. Awesome. Um, and just a thought that's drifting through my mind as we talk about dyslexia. Um, I keynoted a dyslexia conference a little while ago, like about a year ago, I guess. And when I talked to them, what I talked about was my wall of awful model and the emotional impact of having a reading disorder because we often place judgment into reading disorders and, and struggles with reading that are not accurate to someone's intelligence. We often assume they're not as smart as they should, as they might be. We often assume that there's something wrong or that they're like just not trying hard enough. Like you mentioned earlier, there's that little bit of moral judgment that creeps in too. And um, protect your kids from that parents as much as you can. It's not that they're smart. It's not that they don't care. It's not that they're lazy. It's that they have a reading disorder and they're allowed to have a reading disorder just like I'm allowed to have asthma and have trouble breathing sometimes. Someone with a reading disorder is allowed to struggle to read and, and not be that interested in it. And let's find another way to get them motivated. Yeah. And I think it's a, it, it, for some parents, it might be a hard conversation to have with your kids, but I think being really clear about what it means to have dyslexia and you know there are great books out there the dyslexic advantage being one of them um to explain to kids of all ages like you are as smart if not smarter than most people in your class and you just have this one piece that's going to be difficult for you um and but all these other areas are really true strengths for you and it really empowers kids i think to understand why something's hard for them um, and giving them that is is really important and and helping them find other places where they can really be where they can really shine um, is also an important part so just being mindful of time do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience since we're sort of wandered in that direction anyway just now but beth we'll start with you any any ending essentials yeah, my ending thought is I can't stress enough how important it is to observe your child, look out for any signs that you think your child might struggle with reading and really hone in on those so that you can prevent them from struggling in the future. Awesome. Alex? One in five people have dyslexia, so there's a big community out there. Um, so don't feel like you're alone and definitely reach out to other parents and and groups to, to educate yourself and kind of help your, your child see who else is like them. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.